0: Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. We need to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study the Word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit so that it can have value in our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity and privilege to gather together to study Your Word. What a tremendous treasure we have in our Bible, these 66 books of the Old and New Testament which were breathed out by You through the prophets and apostles and preserved down through the ages that we might have Your exact words uh, given to us, that we might have Your Uh, will express to us and that we might come to understand your plan and purposes for mankind and your plan of salvation. Father, we thank you for this church, for its steadfast testimony down through the years in proclaiming the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching the word of God. Father, we pray for this church and its ongoing testimony that that might be steadfast, father, we also pray for our nation, especially at this time this year as we hear rumors of, of uh, threats against this nation, warnings about ongoing terrorist attacks. we pray for our president, we pray for the those in charge of security from the everyday agent down on the street at the airports at train stations at different places around the country and overseas to those who are in charge of sifting through all of the information and data, we pray that you would guide and direct them and that you would watch over this country and protect us during this time. Also, we pray that during this time of of election, that with so many things, charges and countercharges being leveled, we pray that the truth would be clear and that you would continue to provide positive leadership for this nation that is uh, grounded in an understanding of your word and the divine institutions established in your word. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct us this morning as we study your word, that we would be responsive to what is taught, what your word says, and that we would be willing to take the challenge to continue to grow to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, since last week, or since our last lesson, not counting Wednesday night, I went on the trip to... Uh, Trace out, Paul's Second Missionary Journey, and many of you have asked about that and wondered if, if we got a lot of pictures, and I think I took over 250 or 300 pictures, so I will not be standing up here and giving a picture slideshow. Don't worry about that. But what's great about a trip like this is it provides a lot of uh, opportunity to take pictures to spice up presentations to give us insight at different places along the ways we study the word and of course right now we're studying two books that are directly related to this trip. We uh, left last, uh, well we left on July 3rd and we flew over to Thessaloniki and that's uh what we pronounce as Thessalonica. Now that was a real interesting thing is to work through modern Greek pronunciation in relation to Koine Greek and classical Greek. And one of the things that I really hadn't put together, though I've known these things for for years, is that uh, the way we pronounce classical Greek and Koine Greek was really established by Erasmus. Erasmus was the great humanist uh, teacher and scholar in the early 1500s. We usually think of him in the context of the Protestant Reformation as Luther's opponent because uh, he and Luther had various debates. That was one of the reasons Luther wrote the book, The Bondage of the Will, was to counter various teachings of Erasmus. Erasmus saw the need for reformation within the Roman Catholic Church but not a breakaway movement. So once the uh, followers of Luther broke away, then there was a certain... uh, antagonism between Luther and Erasmus. But Erasmus was a classic scholar who developed a system of pronunciation, but he never heard anybody speak Greek. So he just put this system together, and that's what we've used, what scholars have used down through the ages. Of course, Koine Greek is probably fairly removed from modern Greek pronunciation, much like uh, uh, Middle English might be from modern English, but we really don't know how it was pronounced. But you would think that a modern Greek Speaker would have a better idea of how Greek was pronounced than some, uh, medieval scholar who never heard Greek spoken at all. So it's, it's interesting and I toyed with the idea of modifying my Greek pronunciation but it would just be too much and too difficult and it would uh, probably confuse everybody listening to me because they hadn't heard it that way. If you think of, you think of, uh, uh, for example, one group of people mentioned in Acts are the Varians. Now see, you don't know who the Varians are. But those are the Bereans. and one of the things I learned was that in in modern Greek and probably in classical Greek, the letter B, beta, in the alphabet, is alpha, beta, gamma. The B, the beta, is the B sound. It's pronounced like a V. And in modern Greek, if you want to get the B sound, you combine the mu and the p, the m and the p. That is pronounced as a B. So every time you see like we have the word biblos, from which we get our word Bible, that would be pronounced vivlos. So you have all these words with B's in them that are pronounced as if they're V's. And, of course, the accents are a little different and a number of other things. So you have words like uh, Philippi, Philippi, uh, Delphi, uh, Thessaloniki, and that would just confuse everybody. So we'll have our mo- still stick with the way we've been pronouncing things according to either English or classical, or Koine Greek pronunciation, and throw in the other just for a little added insight. But as far as our First Corinthians study goes, I'll, I'll bring in some pictures over the next two or three weeks as we wrap up our study of First Corinthians. We're very close to the end. We'll probably finish the fifteenth chapter this morning and have just two or three lessons in chapter 16, and then we'll be done with 1 Corinthians. But we did go to Corinth, and Corinth was quite a large site. We got to stop at the place where they built a canal, and I think I have a picture at least, um, let me see. Well, I'm not going to be able to get to it. I'll show it in the second hour. But where they built the canal, because Corinth is just south of what's called the Isthmus, of Corinth, which is a very narrow piece of land that joins the Peloponnese, the southern peninsula in Greece, to the uh, main to the northern part of Greece. And it's uh, I pointed out in the introduction to Corinth that one of the things that made Corinth as such a major seaport was because they had in the ancient world they developed a system where they would take ships and they would just haul them over the isthmus it's only a mile or two wide it's not very wide at all and it was safer to go that way than to try to uh, navigate around the peloponnese apparently the waters were pretty rough and the weather was pretty rough at times so it was just easier to do it that way so they would haul them overland they attempted in the ancient world to dig a canal but it never worked they have one now and it i don't think it's as wide as this Uh, it's got to be wider than this church but not a whole lot there were a couple of large uh, uh, cruise ships that went through and it looked like they were almost scraping the sides so it was pretty narrow and uh, we stopped there got some pictures of the uh, Corinthian canal and then we went to the old ancient site of Corinth due to uh, an earthquake the modern modern Corinth is in a different location it's a uh, not too far away, but we visited the old site. Just amazing to see all of the ruins there and all of the uh, columns and the various temples and to the various different uh, deities in the uh, Greek pantheon. The one thing that impressed me again and again and again, wherever we were, whether it was up in at Philippi or in um, in the ruins in Ephesus or wherever we went was that in the ancient world, when Paul went from city to city and town to town, he was constantly surrounded by paganism. It was everywhere, the artwork. We think of the the pictures that you've seen of the, of the Parthenon on top of the Acropolis in Athens. And there were numerous temples there. And standing on the Acropolis, you can look down and you can see Uh, a number of other temples to various other gods the temple of Zeus and a number of others that you could see so everywhere that Paul went there was artwork there were, were buildings, there were temples again and again and again that were, was communicating the pagan ideas of the ancient world. And the reason I say that is because in our time, Christians sometimes get so overprotective of their children that they want to, want to prevent them from ever seeing or hearing anything that might not be Christian. And that really, that's a problem. In the ancient world, they really had a problem. If if you had that mentality as a believer in Ephesus or Corinth in the first, second, third century, you'd have to put a blindfold over your children and stick uh, earplugs in their ears to to, uh, keep them from seeing the kind of things that they saw. It was everywhere. That was part and parcel of the pagan culture in which they lived and operated. And that tells us something, that parents need to be interacting with those things. And when the kids ask questions and see things, that's a teaching time for the parents. And you can't just shelter and hide your kids away from the influence of the world. You can to some degree, and you should to some degree, but you can't completely. We are, as Jesus said, in the world, but not of the world. And it is your responsibility as parents to teach your children... These differences—they—they have to live in the world. They're constantly going to be exposed to these things through television, through movies, through teachers, through friends. You can't completely uh, shelter them. And in the ancient world, uh, I I had got some pictures. I think it was in Ephesus of a mosaic on the wall that was again a representation of. Of one of the gods in the pantheon, but this would be typical in any building. I've pointed this out before uh, because a few years ago we saw an exhibit that was up here at the art museum in Worcester that was uh, mosaics from um, uh, uh, in uh, from uh, in Syria from um, I can't think of the name of the town now in where were we? in Antioch. From Antioch of Syria, from that same period, from the first to the third century A.D., and every t- every home. And in Ephesus, Paul taught for two years in the school of Tyrannus, which was just a, um, a, a a secular school. I mean, he just rented space in this secular school philosophy, and so they would have had all the same kind of artwork on the walls. And this was where he met and he taught in an environment where instead of having pictures of Jesus on the walls like you have in some churches, pictures of the apostles, stained glass that portrays the different events in the Bible, Paul taught for two years in the school of Tyrannus, and what was probably on the walls there were pictures of Zeus and um, Aphrodite and all the various gods of the Olympian uh, pantheon. And just all, and and representing all the different stories and episodes in, in Greek myths, and that was on the wall where he was teaching doctrine. And see, modern modern Christians are so legalistic and so sheltered that they get the idea that if they sit in an environment where there's anything visual that they don't agree with, well, they're just not even going to show up at that place. And that is such a superficial, silly, regressive mentality that it's self-destructive, and it's just another form of self-righteous legalism. So that was really interesting just to see everything that was there. And, of course, in in Athens, you're just surrounded by all of these temples. And to think what it must have been like for Paul to have stood at Mars Hill and to have challenged the Athenian uh, philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, and he just basically you know, can sweep his arm around. And everywhere you look, there's a temple, some kind of construction. And he says, well, all of this is nothing. It's all vanity. I came to teach you about the uh, unknown God that you have an altar for here. And he just basically trashed everything that was in sight. And it's amazing the boldness that he had in that situation. But by going over there, you really become aware... Of of just how overwhelming pagan pa- all these pagan ideas were and how how uh, how present they were, and Paul was down in Corinth and you had tremendous evidence of all of that in Corinth and I'll show a few uh, pictures there. I've got pictures of the beam and the diff- a few different temples and just the layout of the area, and then as we go into Revelation, of course, we went to the Isle of Patmos and we'll see some things related to uh, the book of Revelation, got a number of pictures uh, in that regard. So you'll see pictures of these things as we go along. And um, rather than dumping everything on you or taking up time to just show, show it all at one time, it was fascinating, a lot of interesting things. It was enjoyable to spend time with the leaders on the trip, of course, my good friend Tommy Ice, and then uh, to get to know Tim LaHaye a little better and Ed Heinson, who's the uh, assistant to the Chancellor. uh, That's the Chancellor of Liberty University, which is Jerry Falwell, and uh, several others on the trip. It was a really good trip, but as I say to those of you who are here on Wednesday night, if you uh, think you want a vacation, don't go on a group tour. It is a rugged experience. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 50. And finish up this last paragraph in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 58. Now, verse 50 reads, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Now, last time when I taught on this, I correlated this to a problem passage over in Matthew chapter 25. So keep your place here in 1 Corinthians 15 and turn with me to Matthew chapter chapter 25. And we will briefly look at the problem again, just to put it back in your head, on the sheep and the goat judgment. Now here's a chart that's familiar to you of our prophetic panorama. We have the church age which ends with the rapture of the church where every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ during this age is raptured. Those who are dead uh, will be raised first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to be with the Lord in the air and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. In heaven we will go through the judgment seat of Christ which is the purification time of the church when we receive rewards or loss of rewards for those who are failures in the Christian life and in preparation for the marriage of the Lamb. During that period of time on the earth, there will be seven years known as the Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, various other names in the Bible. The Tribulation ends with the second coming of Christ when he touches down on the earth. He comes down uh, to uh, the earth, defeats the armies of the Antichrist, uh, culminating in his return to the Mount of Olives, he actually returns at various other places, including uh, the Valley of Jehoshaphat and all up nor- uh, or, or over to the uh, southeast in Basra, which is near Petra, and it, his final arrival is on the Mount of Olives. Now, there's a lag time of about 75 days between the second coming and the beginning of the tribulation, during which time there are various judgments. One of these judgments is described in Revelation chapter I mean in Matthew uh, chapter twenty five. And at this time Jesus is judging those who survived the tribulation. Now the problem I pointed out last time is occurs in verse thirty four. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, he is speaking to the Gentile believers who have survived the tribulation. Now, here's a situation. You have at the end of the tribulation a group of people who have survived. Now, not a whole lot survived. Most people are killed during the tribulation through either the judgments Or the wars that that take place. But there's a certain segment that survive. Now, these survivors who are alive are going to be judged uh, because only believers can enter into the millennium. So they're brought forward. And it has to do with Gentile judgments. If you have a King James Version, it says, verse 32, All the nations will be gathered before Him. And the word there for nations is the word uh, ethnos for, and this would be the word for Gentiles. So this is a Gentile judgment. It's not a, gent- a judgment related to the Jewish survivors of the tribulation, but it's a judgment on the Gentiles who have survived. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And many times when we were going through, are driving down the highway in Greece. We saw shepherds out with a flock that was a mix of sheep and goats. I kept thinking, I just have to get a picture of this and never did. But we saw that many times. So the shepherd will divide the sheep from the goats. He will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. The sheep are believers, Gentile believers who survived the tribulation. The goats on the left are the Gentile unbelievers. To the Gentile believers, the King Jesus says, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So these Gentile believers are going to inherit the kingdom, but they don't have a resurrection body. That was a point I I addressed last time, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 15.50 says, Nor does perishable inherit the imperishable. So how does this work? And the reason it works is because 1 Corinthians 15.50 is addressing church-age believers. The church-age believers have to go through resurrection before inheritance. This is not addressing what happens at the end of the tribulation. Okay, since it's been a couple of weeks, that sets things up and gets you back on target. Now, while I was teaching that, which is typical, people will read through the rest of the context to pick it up. And and Joseph came up with a very good question last time. Because at the end of this, when Jesus has has told the believers to inherit the kingdom, and that is an immediate event, Jesus turns to them and He says, Inherit the kingdom right now. It's not something that's postponed. It's not something that is going to happen in, in a couple of years, but it's right then. He turns to the goats and he the unbelievers, and he says in verse 41, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So what happens here is that at this point, at the end of the tribulation, in that judgment period between the tribulation and the millennium, Unbelieving Gentiles who survived the tribulation are sent to the lake of fire. The reason that, that question was raised is because we normally teach that it's at the end of the millennium, at the great white throne judgment, when the dead unbelievers are raised and all unbelievers are judged at the great white throne judgment. Well, what about these guys? Well, these guys are already in the lake of fire. Their judgment occurs In this gap, and the reason it occurs, it takes place, and they're sentenced at that point is because they have survived. They're still alive. So they're judged at that point. Whereas at the end of the millennium, that is a resurrection of the dead. See, that wouldn't apply to the surviving unbelievers of the tribulation because they have, they do not die physically. So, in essence, you have this special group of unbelievers that are judged at the end of the tribulation and all other unbelievers, because they've died and they have to be resurrected, do not get resurrected for their judgment until the end of the, of the millennial kingdom. So that was a good question because it's normally taught. In fact, last week after I went home, I was scratching my head and I was talking to Tommy. or This was really a couple of weeks ago. And I asked Tommy, I said, what do you think? I don't know. I hadn't thought about that before. And so we brought it up on the trip with some of the other guys, and, and uh, uh, some of them, them had thought about it before, and that's clearly, and it, and there there's clear teaching in a few places, uh, a recognition that this is a distinct judgment for unbelievers, and the emphasis is, as Walbert points out in his encyclopedia on prophecy, that, their judgment is separate because they've never died physically, because they have uh, resurrected. Now, the basis for this judgment, and just, just a side note in case any of you have read through this, and some of you probably have, and you've got some questions, the basis for this seems like it works. It's not faith in Christ. If you look at it, verse 35, Jesus is saying to those who are saved, to the, to the sheep, And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Okay, who are these my brethren? The these my brethren are the Jews in the tribulation period. The tribulation period will be the greatest period of anti-Semitic uh, torture and murder of any time in history. It will make Hitler's holocaust look like a dress rehearsal there will be millions and of Jews slaughtered during the tribulation period i think there's 17 million Jews on the on the planet i think about 3 or only about 3 or 4 million live in israel and about 3 or 4 million live in new york and the rest are scattered throughout the rest of the earth but there will be uh, millions killed during this time and there will be gentile believers who understand the issue. See, this is really dealing with the fact that in the tribulation, it's going to be uh, very clear who's a believer and who's not because the the pressure is going to be so extreme that you're either going to be in obedience or, or or you're dead. And this is why you have passages in the New Testament like believers won't accept the mark of the beast. No believer will accept the mark of the beast. It's going to be evident that if you're a believer, you're going to know what the issue is, and you won't accept the mark of the beast. You're not going to have carnal believers who are living in licentiousness who take the mark of the beast because Revelation makes it clear that no one who receives the mark of the beast is going to be saved. So it's the same kind of thing, that if you're a believer, you're going to understand the issues, and you're going to understand that you have to support the Jews. So... Those who uh, protect the Jews during this time of anti-Semitic uh, persecution are going to be believers, and that is uh, just an evidence of the fact that they are saved, whereas those who, uh, the goats, on the other hand, are anti-Semitic. Verses 42 to 45 explains that in just the opposite terms of those who were supportive. And so the issue of this judgment is to show the the anti-Semitism during the during the tribulation period and that the gentile believers who support the Jews uh, are going to be saved and they receive a special inheritance in the kingdom those gentiles because of their support for Israel during the tribulation will receive a special inheritance in the kingdom and we've studied inheritance before and we know that inheritance isn't simply uh, entering into the kingdom but it has to do with a special place of privilege and ownership and uh, ruling and reigning responsibilities. Now, of course, their ruling and reigning responsibilities or their participation in the kingdom is going to be different from that of church-age believers. But they will have a special place because of the way they treated the Jews during the tribulation period. Okay, let's go back. Now that we've answered that question, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Paul says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And here he is using the words corruption and incorruption to describe the mortal flesh, as we'll see in verse Verses uh, 51 and 52, there is a uh, synonymous parallelism between corruption and mortality and incorruption and immortality. Corruption refers to the fact that these bodies that we have are subject to sickness, to disease, to deterioration, to death, something we're all familiar with. And it is not possible for this present mortal Flesh to enter into and to enter into the kingdom of God. We cannot live forever in this mortal body, so there must be a change. But the issue here is inheritance. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So I did a study of this phrase, inherit the kingdom of God, and how is it used, and when it is used. And we've studied this to some degree in the past, so I'm not going to labor this particular point. It's used in the passage we just referred to in Matthew 25, uh, verse 34, which refers to Gentile believers who survived the tribulation. It's also used in the difficult passage of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, where Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And there it's not using the word unrighteous as unbelievers. It is talking about those who are unrighteous believers in their behavior, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is addressed to believers. He goes on to say, "...do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, that's uh, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, will inherit the kingdom of God. This is not talking about salvation. This passage is talking about ruling and reigning, church-age believers ruling and reigning with Christ, that if you're a failure in this life and you continue to live in rank carnality where your life is so characterized by all of these sins, then there will not be rewards for you in heaven and no ruling and reigning responsibility. The same thing is repeated in Galatians 5.21. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think it's important that Paul says proso, practice, not poieo, to do. So those who continue in carnality, living according to the flesh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21, Ephesians 5.5 repeats that idea. For this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So all of these passages emphasize that a special kind of inheritance. However, the word inherit, as we saw in Matthew 25, can also refer to that basic inheritance of entry into the kingdom of of God, and this is how it is used in first corinthians fifteen fifty we must all enter into the kingdom with a new body, even those who are not heirs of the kingdom. they must, because they 're going to live there, have a new body. now th- there's a sub theme here in first Corinthians fifteen as he brings in this concept of inheritance that 's related to the last verse verse fifty eight I want you to just skip down for a minute. To verse 58. The first word in verse 58 is the word therefore. And as I've said before many times, whenever you see a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. It's a conclusion. Now, we live in a world where people don't want to think. And we don't attract a whole lot of folks to Preston City Bible Church or to the Tate Ministry for long who don't want to think. See, the purpose of the pulpit ministry is to teach people to overhaul their thinking. So if you are intellectually lazy, you will never make it in the Christian life because you have to overhaul your thinking, and that is not easy. It takes time. And what happens is most people don't want to think about their thinking. They just want to come to church. They want to feel inspired, hear a 15- or 20-minute sermonette, and then go home and feel good about themselves and feel good about life, somewhat uplifted, and, and God loves me, and I don't have to worry about too much, and I can just live my life the way I want to, and everything's just going to be fine. But that's not what the Bible teaches. But that fits the, the tenor of our day. You can turn on the television and see all of these enormous churches and listen to what's being taught, and it's superficial, it's shallow. In many cases, it's not even biblical. It may sound good. It teaches a nice morality, sort of a civic religion. But it's, and in many cases, it's very emotional about God. But it doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't really teach you how to think biblically. And people often come to church and they say, Well, I want to go home with something practical. Maybe you've said that. I want you to look at this chapter. We have been in 1 Corinthians 15 studying the doctrine of resurrection for, I don't know, maybe three months. I forgot to go back and look at how long we've been here, but it's been a long time. This is a lengthy chapter, 58 verses on the doctrine of resurrection, one of the few chapters in Paul's writing that is totally dedicated to the exposition of one doctrine. Now, for the first 57 verses, there's not a whole lot that is what I would call take-home practical. 57 verses. He has one verse out of 58 that is take-home practical, and that's the last verse. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. See, it, it takes 57 verses to straighten out your thinking. Once you straighten out your thinking, then the application flows fairly easily. It's not difficult to figure out how to apply Scripture once you straighten out your thinking. But when your thinking is based on carnal concepts or pagan concepts or human viewpoint concepts then the application seems really difficult. People say, how can I really do that? Why, how is that practical? I, need to, I, I don't understand that. Well, the reason you don't understand it is because you're operating on pagan presuppositions. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out is that this last clause, or this last exhortation to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, is directly related to this idea of inheritance. Inheritance that if we are going to be heirs of the kingdom in all of its sense and to have rewards in eternity then we have to fulfill that mandate and part of what will happen to us as well as to to unbe- as well as to carnal believers is that we will receive a resurrection body see when paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god he is not excluding carnal believers they will receive a resurrection body as well there are certain things that every believer will have in common we will all have a resurrection body we will all be in heaven we will all have inexpressible joy we will all experience the truth that there will be no more sorrow no more tears no more pain no more death for the old things have passed away but for believers who have pursued spiritual maturity For believers who have received rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, for believers who have studied the Word, made it a part of their life, made it a part of their thinking, made doctrine a priority in their life, there will be special advantages in heaven. There will be special capacities to enjoy heaven. And we're going to see and study some of those in the second hour when we get into the Seven letters to the seven churches. There is a special promise to overcomers at the end of each of those letters. And an overcomer is a believer who is victorious in the Christian life. And that's the theme of, of this section, our final victory. So Paul says, "...this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God." Nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery is a previously unknown truth, and this is uh, related to the rapture of the church. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism in the Scripture for believers. Their body sleeps in the grave, as it were, until it is called forth. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And this takes place at the rapture, instantaneously. And this is described in the next verse. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, what does this mean? First phrase, in a moment. This is the Greek word atomos, which is where we get our English word atom, atomic. Uh, This is the... Root word, A-T-O-M-O-S, atomos. And it refers to the smallest particle that cannot be further subdivided. The smallest possible unit that cannot be further uh, subdivided. So you think of the smallest increment of time that can't be further subdivided, a nanosecond. That That is how quickly... This will take place in an indivisible instant of time, in a moment. And then it's further defined as in the twinkling of an eye. And this is the Greek word ripe. The Greek word ripe. R-H-I-P-E, ripe. And repay isn't the blink of an eye. You know, you can look at me and you can blink your eyes and that takes a, uh, I don't know, half a second or a quarter of a second. But if you look at me and then you flick your eye over to the screen behind me and the, as much time as it takes for you to flicker your eye from one object to another, that is a repay. It is just, just almost immeasurable be you can't even think that quickly this is how quickly this change will take place in a in an instant in a moment of time an indivisible moment of time at the last trumpet now this last trumpet is often confused by people who believe in a post-tribulation rapture, that is a rapture that comes after the tribulation, not before, as the last trumpet judgment. But the last trumpet judgment in Revelation has to do with the judgments in Revelation, and there are many different soundings of the trumpet in Scripture. This is the last trumpet of the church age because from this point on, Church-age believers are face-to-face with the Lord, so there is no longer a need for a trumpet to be used in relationship to the church. Trumpets were used to announce uh, various events in the ancient world. So this is the last trumpet in relation to events in the church-age and concludes the church-age. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, there will be a blast of the trumpet, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. That is, we are changed from a mortal body to an immortal body. We receive at that instant our resurrection body. This is further defined for us in First Thessalonians four fifteen to 18 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, this is the rapture, will by no means precede those who are asleep. See, the same terminology. The, those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, believers who have died, and their bodies are in the grave. First uh, Thess 4:16. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. See, that's the last trumpet. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. And that word caught up together with them is the Greek verb harpazo. H-A-R-P-A-Z-O. Harpazo, which is translated into the Latin Vulgate by the Latin word rapto, which is where we get our word rapture. So that's where you find rapture in the Bible. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, raptured with them in the clouds to meet the Lord where? In the air. See, the rapture is in the air to meet Christ as his bride. The second coming is on the ground where Jesus returns with his bride to the earth. The rapture takes us to heaven. The church, we come with the Lord to the earth. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. We don't just... See, if the rapture occurred at the end of the tribulation, we would bounce up to meet the Lord in the air and then instantly come back with Him to the earth. We wouldn't have a time for the judgment seat of Christ, no purification, no wedding ceremony, and nothing would be there. So first Thessalonians 4:17 thus we shall always be with the Lord therefore comfort one another with these words First Thessalonians I mean 1 Corinthians 15:53 goes on to describe the process the reason is given why this must take place it's introduced by the Greek word gar which always expresses a reason for and then it uses this little particle Our verb, Dei, Dei, it is necessary. This indicates something that is mandatory, something that is not optional. And it should be translated for, it is necessary that this perishable, for it is necessary for this perishable to put on the imperishable. It is necessary for this uh, corruptible to put on Incorruption. it is an an arist, uh, active uh, or excuse me an middle infinitive of in duo which means simply to put on or to clothe. something like you get up in the morning you put your clothes on that this perishable must put on the imperishable or this corruptible must put on incorruption and in And this, and it picks up the same verb, is carried over. It's ellipsized in the second clause. So Paul is is, uh, just using the same verb. And it is necessary that this mortal, it is necessary for this mortal to put on immortality. Let's get a corrected translation. For it is necessary for this corruptible to put on incorruption and this mortal to, to put on immortality Now the same idea is expressed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verses 1 through 5 so hold your place here and turn over a few pages to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Paul expresses the same idea this temporary earthly dwelling must put on a new dwelling Verse one: For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, that is not made through the normal process of, of the way human bodies are produced through uh, sexual procreation. We have a building not made, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this, that is, in this body, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. We groan because on a day-to-day basis we are faced with the infirmities of living in a fallen world and living in fallen bodies. And we yearn and desire for that habitation which is from heaven. Verse 3, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked, that is, and there's no time, really, when the soul is, is naked. We know that there is some sort of interim body, whatever it is. It's not a physical body. It is some sort of a spiritual body, but we know from various passages that we studied that there's some sort of interim body. Samuel had one when he appeared to Saul, when he came, uh, when, when the witch of Endor called him forth. You also have the episode in Luke chapter uh, 16 where the uh, rich man is in uh, 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 torments and he asked Father Abraham to let, uh, uh, the Lazarus dip his finger in the water and touch it to his tongue. And then he's going through physical pain. So there's some sort of inner body that, uh, that, that is not fully described in scripture. But this is talking about a permanent, that is just temporary. This is talking about the permanent clothing. Verse 4, for we who are in this tent, that is this present body, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. That is, the Greeks just wanted the, the soul to depart and have a, an independent existence, just sort of a free-floating existence, free from a, a body. They looked at the body as something negative. For we who are in this tent, grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Isn't that a fascinating way to express it? This isn't real life. This is mortal life. He says mortality, this present mortality, will be swallowed up by real life. That is, eternal life, but also qualitative life. In verse 5, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And that is the pledge of the Holy Spirit... um, it's the Greek word Erebon, which means a pledge or a down payment, and it is related to the sealing of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two and Ephesians one fourteen. that the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit is our down payment, our guarantee of our future resurrection body. Now let's go on. 1 Corinthians 15.54. In 53, Paul explained the reason that for when that, that, that this corruptible, uh, that this corruptible must put on incorruption and the mortality, mortal must put on immortality. And then he says, so when this happens, verse 54, so when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. See, in verse 54, he shifts the focus to the future. When resurrection has occurred, then there will be a fulfillment of prophecy. When this has happened, when all have been resurrected and the last believer has received his resurrection body, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And this phrase is taken from Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. And in Isaiah 25, verse 8, we have a promise actually to the Jews. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people, that is of Israel, He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So Paul, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes this first phrase, paraphrases it and says, At this time of the last resurrection, final resurrection of the last believer, death will be swallowed up in uh, Victory, It will be completed, and all the consequences of spiritual death will be removed. And th- at this point, we have to understand, what does he mean by death? See, the Bible speaks of seven different deaths. Seven different deaths. First of all, there is spiritual death. This is the most important. This is the penalty for sin. When, when God created Adam... And placed him in the garden, he said, there's one prohibition. You can eat from any tree in the garden, but you can't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, and the Hebrew there is emphatic, at the instant you eat from it, you will certainly die. No doubt about it, it's not going to be postponed 930 years until you die physically, Adam. It will happen the instant you eat from the fruit. Well, when he ate from the fruit, he did not die physically. In fact, there were no immediate physical consequences. But there was an immediate spiritual consequence. And we know that because when God came to walk in the garden and to teach Adam and the woman, as He did on a day-to-day basis in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that they were afraid and they hid and they realized that they were naked and they made uh, fig leaf coverings for themselves. So the first... De- death and the most important is spiritual death. That's the penalty from sin. You really have to understand this. It's pe- the penalty, the judicial penalty for sin is spiritual death. Christ paid that penalty on the cross. But because the unbeliever rejects that payment, he never receives regeneration and he is never, uh, justified. Therefore, he cannot go into the presence of God. His spiritual death is paid for. And that has to do with understanding what Christ did on the cross. He died spiritually as our substitute. It's not his physical death that paid the penalty. It is his spiritual death that paid the penalty. Physical death was a consequence. Physical death isn't even mentioned in Genesis 3 until almost the end when, it, when God tells Adam that from dust you came and to dust you will return. So spiritual death is the first form of death. Romans 5.12 says that just as through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sin. Because of spiritual death, you have all the other kinds of death. But spiritual death is the ultimate cause. You also have the second kind of death, which is physical death. This was a consequence of the penalty for sin. It was part of physical suffering. Uh, all of this suffering in, in human history from wars, famines, pain, disease, uh, murders, all are the consequence of spiritual death and separation from God. This kind of uh, physical death is extended into the animal kingdom and. Uh, you have destruction and, and uh, also consequences in the, in the uh, vegetation kingdom because you have the sprouting of thorns and thistles in the garden. But, but vegetation doesn't die because vegetation isn't alive. Now, I know some of you love your plants and some of you probably talk to your plants and you hope that helps and you read some silly literature that says it does. But the Bible does not use the same word for life in, a, in relation to plants that it does for animals and human beings so therefore, when a, if a plant were to, if a plant had died in the garden, it wouldn't be death from sin. it wouldn't be that kind of death because it doesn't have life in the in the biblical sense. It just has basic vegetative life, which isn't what we're talking about here. Uh, this is talking about the uh, consequences from sin romans five twelve is talking about spiritual death that spread to all men, and as a result of that all sin but also all go through all the other consequences of of uh spiritual death. The third category is spiritual death. I mean, excuse me, sexual death. This is a category of death that is only described in the Bible in relation to Abraham and Sarah because they had lived far beyond the n- normal uh childbearing years. They were no longer capable of procreation. This is given in Romans 4:17 to 21 and Hebrews 11, 11-12. The fourth kind of death is positional death. This is for the believer and the believer only, the church age believer only. It takes place at regeneration. When we put our faith alone in Christ alone, we are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. That's positional death described in Romans 6, 1-4. through 4. Then for the believer, there is also carnal death. This is the fifth kind of death described in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, as well as in Revelation 3, 1. In Revelation 3, 1, uh, Jesus says, I know your works, that you have a reputation that you are living, but you are dead. You are in carnality. It is, you're not living a spiritual life, you're physically alive, and you're not spiritually dead, but your works are, are, are dead works. This is the same thing that is mentioned in Hebrews 6, 1. Uh, dead works, uh, Hebrews 6, one states, Therefore, we graduate from the elementary teachings about Christ. Let us advance to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So we produce dead works. No matter what you do, read your Bible, go to church, witness, pray. Whatever you do in carnality is just dead works. It's not done in Christ. Then the sixth category of death in the Bible is the sin unto death, 1 John 5.16 which is reserved for the rebellious believer who goes out under a miserable death because of his disobedience to God. First John five sixteen, and then the um, that was the sixth. The seventh is the second death. Revelation two eleven, which is for unbelievers only. This is their eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Death is swallowed up in victory, and then we have a quote from Hosea, chapter 13, verse 14: "O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory?" Now, if you have a New American Standard, let me see if this what you have. It's a little different in your Bible. In the New American Standard, or NIV. It reads, O death, where is your victory? And O death, where is your sting? The King James and the New King James has, O death, where is your sting? And then it doesn't repeat death. It has, O Hades, where is your victory? And I'm not going to go into this in detail, but there are different ways of dealing with textual problems and where there's disagreements in manuscripts. I mean, to really simplify it, the New American Standard and NIV, etc., base their views on the, the scholarship of two late 19th century scholars named Westcott and Hort. Although it's really more of an eclectic view today. But the bottom line is the older document is the better document. And that sounds good, doesn't it? If it's older, we have a document from the 4th century as opposed to one in the 9th century, it must be better. But what if the 9th century is a perfect copy of a 2nd century document? See, older isn't always better. And uh, due to the, uh, the work of a number of scholars in the 50s and 60s, another view has come into uh, a promise called the majority text view. And I believe the majority text view is, a, is a, a superior view. And this puts more of an emphasis on the text families and their, their, their uh, background. And the majority text is often similar to what's called the Textus Receptus, or the received text. The Textus Receptus was a collection of eight Greek manuscripts that Erasmus, I spoke of Erasmus earlier, Erasmus used when he put together the New Testament, Greek New Testament, that was used during the Reformation and was the basis for translating the King James Version. But these were basically 9th and 10th century documents, and we've discovered thousands of texts since since that time. So the majority text is similar to the TR, but it's different. Now, the TR isn't just the King James. You'll have a lot of people who come along and they'll say, Oh, it's the King James. It was good enough for the Apostle Paul. It was good enough for me. And since the 70s, there's been a huge movement of people who are called King James only idiots, uh, Christians. And their idea is that you can only use the King James, because that's the inspired translation. And these people, Jim Myers tells me, he even runs into them over in the Ukraine, and they say, well, you can't even teach Russians out of the Russian Bible. You have to use the King James authorized version. Well, the answer is, which one? It got revised dozens and dozens of times over the centuries. So are you talking about the original one of 1611? None of us use that one anymore. It's been revised, it's still called the King James Authorized Version, but it's been updating, corrected, spelling, all kinds of things. So, I mean, it's just a silly position. Uh, so, but there are differences. The majority text differs from the King James in about 1,800 places. Now, you're going to hear this a lot coming up, because in Re- in Revelation, there's a lot of problems. And uh, they're minor, they don't affect any doctrine, but we'll see a couple uh, probably next week. But I am going to begin a study when we finish 1 Corinthians uh, that will look at the Bible. How did we get the Bible? How can we know we tr- can trust the Bible? And we'll do that when we conclude our study, First Corinthians 15. But Paul says, O death, where is your sting? And O Hades, where is your victory? This is a quote from Hosea 13, verse 14, which reads, Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? See, that comes over into the New Testament, or the Greek is Hades. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol or Hades? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion will be hidden from my sight. So Paul utilizes the verbiage there, and so we, I think that... The majority text is more accurate. Oh death, where is your sting? And oh Hades, where is your victory? In other words, what produces a sting? Something produces a sting and then it has a result. In verse 56 we read, the sting of death is sin. Okay, so what produces death? It is sin. See, if the sting of something, uh, the sting is produced by something. By a bee, so the sting of death is sin. The sting, death is produced by sin. So it's talking about spiritual, spiritual death, and the strength of sin. Literally, the power of sin is the law, and uh, this comes from, or is parallel to what Paul says over in Romans seven five, that when we were in the flesh, that is, in carnality, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. See, the law brings to our attention sin. And the law, in essence, Paul is saying in Romans 7, produces sin because it makes us aware of sin. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, Paul says, The sting of death is sin, that which produces death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But, in contrast, thanks be to God who gives us the victory, victory over spiritual death, victory over the penalty of sin, victory over law because grace uh, removes the law. Uh, we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is our victory over death because of Christ's payment for sin on the cross. His death is the end of the law. And it pays the penalty for our sin. And because of that, because we're no longer in bondage to sin, because we're no longer in bondage to the law, Paul concludes by saying, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. And it is literally a present passive imperative. It's a, a deponent verb, which means it has an active voice meaning, though it has a passive form. Become steadfast. It's from the verb genomai. Become steadfast, and the word steadfast means to hold your ground, don't back up. It is the Greek verb hedraios, H-E-D-R-A-I-O-S, meaning to take a seat from the root word hedra, meaning to take a seat. So it means to hold your ground. Don't fall back, don't regress in your spiritual life. Hold your ground, be steadfast, immovable. And this is the Greek word ameth. Kinetos. And this is, uh, means not to shift or change. The root there is kineo, which is the word for we, where we get our word kinetic. Or kine for, for a movie, kinescope. Uh, it has something that's moving. This is immovable. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor, your toil is not in vain. In the Lord. Now, the way that should be translated is because you know that your labor by means of the Lord, it's an N plus the dative, your labor by means of the Lord, it's not the sphere of the Lord, it is by means of the Lord, the same kind of verbiage you have with the Holy Spirit. We live the Christian life by means of the Holy Spirit. That when you are involved in Christian uh, service in relationship to the filling of the Holy Spirit by means of the Lord, then this has eternal value. This concept of work is difficult for a lot of Christians who are grace-oriented. But again and again and again, Paul emphasizes the importance of work and labor. 1 Peter 1.17 And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. So we will be judged according to our work. Revelation 22.12 Uh, Paul says, let me see, I may have that here. Uh, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. And Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these are our works. So we are to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in In the work of the Lord. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the challenge here in uh, 1 Corinthians. that, That because we know that we have a resurrection body. That we have resurrected life. That we have eternity with you. That we are to live today in light of eternity. That we have a future and a future inheritance that is based on uh, what we do today. Our eternal life is not based on what we do. It's based on what Christ did on the cross. Eternal life is a free gift, but rewards are based on what we do. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're unsure of your salvation or uncertain of your eternal destiny. This is your opportunity to make that both sure and certain. You have to simply believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny simply by what you're trusting in for salvation. If you trust in Christ alone, the Scriptures promise that we have eternal life that can never be taken from us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.